Hey everyone, welcome to What Are You Watching? I'm Alex Withrow and I'm joined as always by my best man, Nick Dostal. How you doing there, Fredo? I'm excited to be here. This is this. What is that? This, this is, is this. this. Uh, today we're talking about the great, the iconic, the legendary John Gazelle. Perhaps the most talented actor to only ever be in five movies total. These movies came out in a six-year period in the 1970s. They were all hailed as classics immediately. All the movies were nominated for Best Picture, and the common thread of all of them is this guy. This one guy who can be noticeable in the background and then completely steal scenes without us even realizing it. Tell me about John Gazelle. I think the best way that I can sum up him is that I truly think that he is the definition of what a supporting actor is. Uh, Same. These are all the parts that he's played. And I think he just, he defines what that actually means. Before we get into the work, as we're talking about John Gazelle, there is a very harsh reality that we have to face up front. And that is the fact that this man did not live very long. He was 42 years old when he died of lung cancer in early 1978. And he is inarguably one of the great acting legends that we lost too soon. And in that upsetting vein, we have a few more people to mention before we get into Gazelle here. Michael K. Williams, uh, a tremendous actor to me. He started popping up in small film and TV parts in the late 90s. He had massive success on television, but he was also directed on film by so many greats. Uh, Scorsese, Spike Lee, Todd Salon, Steve McQueen, PTA, John Hillcoat, Edward Norton. And then on TV, he clearly repeatedly stole shows like The Night Of, which was astounding, Lovecraft Country. Bessie, Boardwalk Empire, and of course, of course, Omar Little in The Wire, one of the great iconic performances of this century in TV or film. Um, You know, I followed his career very closely because of the Omar influence. He's just, he had such an ownness of that character, and he seems so immersed just in that character's very fiber. Um, and And we're not alone in our fond remembrance of him. And then a few days later, we get hit with another bombshell, which is that the great, legendary, iconic comedian Norm MacDonald passed away. And I've, I love Norm MacDonald. You and I grew up on his humor. And of course, he was, <laughs> he was on Weekend Update and SNL and just made those ceaseless OJ jokes. He just kept going and kept going. They eventually fired him for it because I guess someone high up at NBC was like, stop making those jokes because OJ is my friend. And Norm wouldn't. And then, you know, they brought him back like a year and a half later to host the show and he just roasted them the whole time. But yeah, tell me about Michael K. Williams. Tell me about Norm. Yeah, it's uh, it's sad. It's unfortunate because when something like this happens, you look back at the work that was left. And what's great is that you get to look back at this work. And what's horrible is that you realize that no more is coming. And that that's that's the tragedy of it. And um, the most important thing you can do in death is to celebrate the life. Right. Right. And um, no matter how it happens or whatnot, it, it, it almost what, what matters is the legacy in this case that, you know, these two men left. Um, Norm Macdonald for me was I thought he was one of the funniest quick 
one-line joke makers of our time. Like I, 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 I don't even mean to sound um, too extravagant here, but I think since Rodney Dangerfield, Norm Macdonald was the best at just quick hit you with this, that, right on the spot, just jokes. Yeah, it's just, it's just, it's a sad, it's a sad time for all of that. A toast to the greats. Absolutely. And now on to Mr. Gazelle. John Gazelle was born in Revere, Massachusetts in 1935. He was interested in acting and he took to stage work while he was in college in Ohio and Boston. That stage work took him to off-Broadway work in New York. In between gigs in New York, he's a messenger for Standard Oil where he meets a young, shy kid named Alfredo James Pacino. The two become fast friends. Al helps Gazelle get cast in a few things, but really, after you watch John Gazelle's first performance in The Godfather, and you study those eyes, you know, those eyes, those fucking eyes, man, as Sam Rockwell describes them. Yeah. You watch Gazelle's Fredo, and you know that his talent is going to carry him through throughout his entire career. A, a friend may help him get in the door, but it's those eyes, and it's that talent that really, really prominent directors called him back for. But I wanted to kick it over to you. What is the first exposure you remember having to John Gazelle? And I think my first exposure to him had to have been the Godfather movies, mm-hmm. but I didn't take notice of him, um, which is uh, a, a, a bit of a unfortunate common trait amongst his legacy, I think, and why he may have kind of flew under the radar of a lot of things is because... He does go unnoticed until you notice him. Right. And right. once you notice him, you can't not notice him. He, even in the background, he is the most watchable thing of everything you're seeing. So it does take like a little bit, just almost to like the untrained eye. You're just sort of like watching a bunch of things, and all of a sudden, this jewel is unearthed before your eyes. But I think I really noticed him in The Deer Hunter. I think that was the one where I was yep, like... Yep. Same, same. The yeah, Deer Hunter, same. Exactly. That's so interesting. That's go, Keep going. That's so I, I was taken by his performance and I go, this is Fredo. Like, I know him. And then you just go back and you look and you're like, oh my God, it's the guy in Dog Day Afternoon. And he's in the conversation. Like, he just all of a sudden pops up and you didn't even know he was there. Yep. I first noticed Gazelle, it, it's funny, it's like the same kind of, I had the same sort of in that you did. I watched The Godfather first, but the thing that really made him stand out to me was The Deer Hunter. And I was obsessed with movies when I was so young. And as a young movie buff, the five movies he's in are going to announce themselves to you pretty early on because they are these classics that were nominated for Best Picture, a few of them won. And so I start on these classics and I'm like, who the hell is this guy? Like, I know Brando, I know Pacino, I know De Niro, I know Diane Keaton, but who is this guy with these eyes, these sunken, dark eyes? And once I realized he died so young, I mean, it was just really devastating to a young movie buck. Like, oh, the five. Wow. Just same here. I love the five. I'll always love the five, but just, you know, imagine the classic performances they could have followed, but I grew up in a house where my dad revered James Dean, you know, Monty Clift, but really Dean. And he would show me Rebel Without a Cause and be like, look at him. St- like, look at the way he's acting and behaving and reacting. Yeah. And Gazelle fits into that, too. One of these legends that we 
just lost entirely too soon. And you could tell from his first moment on screen that this is someone who's going to be really important for film for as long as we have him. And in that vein, we'll jump right into the roles here, and we start with Fredo Corleone in The Godfather, 1972. There honestly aren't too many film character names that can legitimately be used as a slur, but Fredo certainly can. I I remember a few years ago, CNN's Chris Como lost his shit when a guy (laughs) called him out and called him Fredo in public, and I think that man was trying to suggest that Chris was the inferior brother of that family, but I'm not so sure that turned out too well. Um, (laughs) When we hear Fredo, we think, you know, it's Fredo. If I call you Fredo, I'm calling you scared, incompetent, weak, vulnerable. And that's based off of a performance with relatively little screen time. Uh, John Gazelle is not in this movie that much, but no matter when he's on, whether he's next to Brando, Pacino, Duvall, Jimmy Kahn, this dude is holding his own his head's down, those eyes are sunken back. And the first time we see him, he's kind of on the outskirts of that Corleone family picture for the wedding. Not a bad way to start a movie. You're in there, your first scenes with Brando. But then the first, like his first major scene, he rolls up next to Pacino and Diane Keaton. You know, he's drunk and Pacino's playing off him and he just kind of melts into it. And that's what a great introduction for him, you know? It's it's almost like the perfect dichotomy of his character because the very first time we see him, he's in a family portrait off to the side, completely unnoticed, invisible. And then we next time we see him, he's kind of this uh, foolish, charming, funny, non-threatening goof. And that's pretty much the levels of which he operates on yeah like watch him when he is completely invisible and then the way he masks that with this idea of this bravado character that i think he's just putting on because he can't deal with his own shame and insecurities about that he's not um taken seriously yeah he's not michael he's not sunny and i mean there are many iconic moments in the godfather but Two for John Gazelle really stick out for me that you once you watch the movie, you can't forget. The first is when he fumbles trying to protect his father, the Don, from being assassinated. You know, he just fumbles with that gun and then he sits there and sobs and sobs in the street like a little kid. And, you know, it when I watch that, it's kind of like Coppola going, whether this was verbally expressed or not, it's like, hey, kid, you know, everyone else has their moment. Like Pacino's about to shoot two dudes in the head in the restaurant. Sonny's going to get iced out. Like, Khan's going to get iced out in the toll booth. This is your moment. You're going to have arguably the biggest movie star ever playing dead in your lap. And he just fucking owns it. I mean, you feel so bad. He seems like a child. He doesn't seem like a grown adult. He seems like a child. Scared. Ah, I, I love that scene. And then, so that nearly ruins him. And then, yeah, he's... He's the goof who's now stricken with shock because he almost let his dad die. His dad may very well die because of this. You know, he's Fredo. He's vulnerable. He's humble. He's dim. He wears those muted clothes, doesn't say a lot, goes away for a little bit. And the next time we see him, he just bursts through those doors in Las Vegas, which is a great scene, great way to command a room. You talk a lot about how an actor has to command a space. And he doesn't go in that room and just do a little like jingle with his arms. Like he he's like a conductor. Like he, oh man, I love that so much. And now he's loud, he's brash, his clothes are bright. 
And most notably, he is not in agreement with how the Corleone family business is being run. And, you know, Pacino's got that great. Don't ever take sides with anyone against the family again, ever. Which is like, if you do, I'm going to fucking kill you. Which, you know, a little foreshadowing there. Um, <laughs> yeah, when you watch Fredo in that scene, you, we've never seen him quite like this. So big and boisterous. And most actors are afraid to play small or fade into the background, but not John. Like when you watch him every scene before that big Las Vegas scene, he just finds a way to lose himself in the background. And most actors don't do that. They're like, how do I make myself visible? How do I do that? He's he's the opposite. And it's that's the truth. That's the character's truth. But when you watch him do that, you really notice the physical the physicality that shoulders are dropped his eyes don't know he can't he can't make eye contact with people it's so bold but so subtle so when he bursts through these doors now we're seeing that mask come on of maybe the guy he wants to be maybe the guy he thinks that he can be he's trying so hard to prove himself to especially michael that when michael tells him I don't want any of this, like get rid of all these people, like, like, you know, essentially like stop making a fool of the family, get everyone out here. I want it. I'm here for business. You see in that little tiny moment, this rejection in his eyes of like, I'm, I did what you said to do. Like you sent me here. I'm showing what I can do. But then you see that. And then he's just like, all right, everyone scram, scram, get out of here. And it's just, um, he's back to that mask. Yeah, yeah. And one, a little side note, you know, I was, I was going on a tear and just making my way through the John Gazelle filmography. And I figured I've never read The Godfather, Mario Puzo's book. So why not? I mean, it's, it's The Godfather. I've heard nothing but great things. <laughs> and there's this really uh, amusing subplot uh, about a doctor in Las Vegas. And he's tied into the family. I won't get into why, but it's a doctor... He's charismatic, and one of his primary jobs is to perform abortions for the girls who are in trouble around town. You know, mobster, girlfriend, showgirls, things like that. And at one point, it is revealed that Fredo is responsible for at least 15 of the abortions the doctor has performed. And it really gives you some insight into how much of a Las Vegas playboy he turned into, which... You know, the book does not have a lot of him in it, not really. So it, it just makes me appreciate his performance, everyone's performance even that much more. But really, John Gazelle, because the text doesn't have too much and they really, really fleshed him out. And it's just I, I thought that was a little, you know, nice little book report aside to include. <laughs> and it's and it speaks to in his performance, too, because you get the idea through his performance that he actually does this. Like mm -hmm. you never see him specifically with like girls, but he dances with them, kisses them on the cheek. You know, from that opening scene with Kay that he's flirtatious, you know, because he's not a no disrespect, but he's not exactly a good looking guy. Right. Right. But you believe that he actually does all this. Like, yeah, he probably sleeps with a lot of girls here because of just his personality. But it's so understated. And you the most important thing is you believe that that's that's what he does. And we'll move right along. We're going to go in chronological order here to how they in the order they filmed them. So, you know, it might be natural just to stay with Fredo, but we're going to switch to Stan 
the affable, curious, somewhat malcontent co-worker of Gene Hackman in The Conversation, also directed by Francis Ford Coppola, released in 1974. Francis Ford Coppola got on so well with Ghazal that after, on the first Godfather, that Coppola cast him in a, this small but crucial role as Stan. And this is a great film, financed in part by Coppola himself. Gazelle's a bit lighter here than he is as Fredo. He laughs, he smiles. His chemistry with Gene Hackman is fucking incredible. They are great playing off each other. And you know, by all accounts, Gene Hackman, tough guy to work with. <laughs> I mean, not, not a lot of cutting up between takes with old Hackman there. But what Hackman did admire was hard work. And John Gazelle, by all accounts, was obsessive in his preparation. A few of his pals, including Meryl Streep and Al Pacino, described Gazelle as being monomaniacal in his prep and research, asking question after question after question about his character, trying to figure them out. And I think Hackman clearly saw this, and it seems like they got on really well together the whole time, and that Hackman was in a good mood while he made this, which is very rare. And I know he still considered his role in the conversation as one of his personal favorites, and I think Gazelle helped with that. And a hundred percent. And also there's a cool story with Francis Ford Coppola telling John Cazale to like, give it to him more. Like yep. To, uh, yep. a, a scene, in a scene. Yep. Like, yeah. like make it bigger, uh, like hit him a little bit harder. And Gene Hackman's, he, yeah, he's a guy who wants to be challenged. Mm-hmm. And if you challenge him, that's when he, sh- he always shows up, but that's when he, he really likes it. You know, Gene Hackman was Gene Hackman. John Cazale was someone that no one really knew outside of, you know, that first movie. And here he is going toe to toe with Gene Hackman. And I I love that little stand character from the conversation because he just he strikes me as an everyman. You don't know too much about him, but you really like get the feeling like this is a guy who's really good at his job mm-hmm. and he's a nerd. He probably has really nerd hobbies. He goes home and probably, you know, builds train sets <laughs> and knows everything that's going on in the news. Like these are just things that I picked up. Like none of these things are being said in the text, but just by the way that he shows up to work, what he talks to his coworker about, the way he does, I can infer for myself based on my life experiences, I know who this guy is. Like mm-hmm. he probably does these things. And that's what, you know, acting is all about is expressing these little bits of who we are as people i love that about this character and you know maybe i should have mentioned this up top but you and i are engaging in this conversation with the assumption that people have seen these movies yeah you know it's we didn't want to kind of hold back anything so we're, we're trying to avoid spoilers but i think of these five films this is probably the one that has been seen the least and it, it's just a really trippy good movie it's all about sound recording and it you know Coppola was very inspired by blow up the Antonioni film Hackman is this guy who's in charge of recording people getting audio recordings of people and giving them to really rich mysterious clients and Gazelle is his co-worker and uh for all of these movies there are really good commentaries on each of the blu-rays and dvds and I watched them all in preparation for this Coppola always gives great directors commentaries. And what he says in this that I never realized is he says, Stan puts forth the idea of the movie. Stan is the one who's like, what's going on with this couple? What the hell are they talking about? Like, what is the big deal about this? And Hackman's like, I don't care. I just want a perfect fat recording. 
And then that kind of baiting that we're talking about, that goading from, from Gazelle as Stan, like, what is it? Damn it. Just show me. You know, it, that is what presses Hackman's character to investigate this a little more and then, you know, kind of drives him crazy. But I just love their, their chemistry, their dichotomy so much. And one of the, perhaps the moment of the film is that little look that they give each other that convention. It's the best when, moment. <laughs> you know, Stan, yeah, Stan works for Harry, for Gene Hackman. He works for him. And because Stan isn't very happy with, with how Harry's running his shop here, Stan just goes and moonlights for competition. And I hadn't seen this movie in a while. I thought that moonlighting, like the convention scene was like, oh, maybe it's like a week later. Like, it's like the same fucking night. Yeah. <laughs> like they were working together earlier in the day. And Hackman's like, I'm not telling you what this, like what they're talking about in this recording. Shut up. Do your job. I just want a fat recording. So Gazelle, even though he doesn't communicate this, is basically like, fuck you. I'm going to your biggest competition. Bye. And that look that they give each other. I mean, he's like, hi, Harry. It's so simple to him. But he's saying, like, you don't want to give me respect. I'll go to your competition. I don't give a shit. And Hackman is just like stunned, gutted into silence. And he's like, uh, uh. And then that's only like halfway through the movie. So then we still have this very tense relationship with them. But that's I mean, that is that's the scene of the movie and you really have to watch with two words. Hi, Harry. It's like, oh, my God. And oh. right after that, like, you're right. There's a there's a surefire fuck you from Kazale to Hackman for that. But then, you know, Kazale's a very loyal guy. Mm-hmm. Like, he doesn't want to work for anyone else. Correct. Yes. So, like, and Hackman you're, is so, like, stunned by this. And he just asks him, he's like, how long have you been working for Moran here? And you see this like, like pain and regret when he just looks at him. He can barely look him in the eyes. He's like, "Yesterday, mm-hmm. like I just got this job yesterday." It as as like as a result because of the way that he treated him yep. and all of this. Like he doesn't want to be in this position. If if Gene Hackman's character just opened up to him, they could work together. But he's like, but I can't do that with you. You won't let me do that. So I got to go find other things here because, you know, there's just so much there. And you feel for him in that tiny moment. There's not a lot of dialogue, but you understand. And it's, oh, that's what he was the best at. Yeah. And just, folks, just go watch this movie. The other four are a a little more popular, but this is a really, really good movie. I appreciated it a lot more now because I understand everything they're doing, like the the technology of it. I understand, you know, when I was a kid watching this, I didn't know like audio recording, syncing. I didn't know how to hide mics. And now I'm watching it and the way that he like syncs all the tracks together. It's Coppola financed this himself for not a lot of money. It kind of feels like that. It feels like an indie movie. It's not a lot of like sets or set pieces, but yes, I just, I really enjoy this movie and I enjoy Hackman's very, understated performance yeah and then gazelle really uh matched him yeah bluffing him it's great as i mentioned reading mario puzo's the godfather made me appreciate the movies even more because very little from the godfather part two is actually in the book it's basically just that backstory of the don fleeing italy to new york that's all there but the fredo betrayal cuba hyman roth that's all coppola and puzo in the screen oh wow so my point is after working with John Gazelle on two movies, Coppola feels confident that he can seriously expand this character way beyond what is in the source text. And what we're ultimately left with is one of the great screen performances in all of film. Not screen performances of John Gazelle's career, not screen performances of the 70s. I'm talking ever. I'm talking Fredo Corleone, Godfather Part Two is 
absolutely iconic because the driving force of this movie is who in the hell would have the stones to try to assassinate Michael Corleone in his house with his wife present. Michael being Michael, he maintains his cool, he goes to different countries, he handles business, but we know that as soon as he finds out, as soon as he fingers who did this, that fucker's dead. And then, you know, it's Occam's razor. The simplest explanation is usually the best one. And I know it was you, Fredo. You broke my heart. So we learn of Fredo's great deception. And wow, I mean, we're talking about screen chemistry and Pacino and him just deliver all-time work here. And I really think this is as good as acting gets. Yeah, the, the chemistry between Pacino and Cazale is, it's got to be one of the best acting duo combinations because they've worked together so frequently because they would also do theater together. Like so, so much of John Cazale's career to all of this came from the theater he was doing. And even to kind of even rewind a little bit, like he got the Godfather because they were having trouble casting Fredo. That's right. And someone was like, you got to see this play. And they did not try to sell John Cazale. They're like, just go see it. And instantly they were like, that's him. So his work spoke for itself. And it wasn't on, you know, a recommendation. But Al Pacino and him would work many, many times together. And Al Pacino has credited him as saying that he learned more about acting from John than anyone else. Mm -hmm. So watching the two of them go at it in the way they do uh, in this movie and others, but if we're talking about this one, feel like there's some scenes that were just iconic movie scenes. And uh, the first one I kind of want to talk about is is the one where they're having lunch. Oh, that's the banana daiquiri? Yes. that That's my first one. I've, he goes, how do you order banana daiquiri? And then, I mean, I'm sorry to interrupt, but just, why why don't we do this earlier? Why don't you spend time? Yeah. It's, it's all right there. Like, fuck, if it's, we would have connected earlier, I wouldn't have tried to kill yep. you. And, but no, that's exactly right. And, and, you know, and he's talking to him because Michael, up until that point, maybe more than anyone, and it's very, very subtle, but Michael has a very, very big soft spot for Fredo. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He closes himself off to everyone else, but is always sort of like, where's Fredo? I want to talk to Fredo. And this is like the one scene where Michael's character even remotely has like a little break from anything. And he just wants to go and talk to Fredo. And, you know, Fredo is, you watch his body language, is he's fidgeting, he's not really sure of what to do because he's hiding something that he has a lot of guilt about. And yet, him and Michael are communicating as brothers, and he feels like he can express himself, you know, he's like, I should have done what you did, you know, get a, get a girl like Kay. You know, he's feeling doubts about himself and then talking about like he grabs onto his arm and he's telling him about like the the way he grew up with mom saying that, you know, he feels like his mom always said we should have left you at a doorstep. Yeah. You know, and and Michael, you know, consoles him. And then you're that line you're talking about where he's like, why didn't we talk like this before? You don't know what that line actually means until you find out what happens or what's going to happen. But that's really exactly that. It's like. Why weren't we this close ever? Why why are you just now talking to me the way that I needed you to before I fucked up and did this? And he even says it. He even fucking says yeah. it. He's even just sort of like, I was real mad at you, Mikey. I was real mad. Yeah. And you're like, what? What do you like? He can't say it, but he's 
he's dropping all of these things and oh my god just watching him fumble through and deal with all of those things because he goes from one to another to another to another they're all so fully lived it's brilliant it's it's a master class in acting that one scene and then the, the, the next one yeah you touched on it too because the first time you're watching this maybe even the first couple times because like you know godfather 2 kind of dense but the first few times you're watching this, you don't understand. You don't know that Fredo's the one who's betrayed him. Yeah, and you're seeing Michael kind of maybe figure this out in the moment, like, huh? And it almost makes me wonder, like, what if Fredo right there is like, it was me, man. It, it, I, I'm sorry, it, it was me. Like, what if he just comes out and levels with him right there, as opposed to drunkenly slipping up? Oh, Johnny, talk. Oh, yeah, Johnny and I were here. Yeah, and it's like you, Johnny. By the way, Uncle June from The Sopranos there. Um, when he drops that and then you see Michael catch it like, oh, my God. Yep. It was it, it was him. He broke my heart. So, yep. so then I honestly don't know how to qualify this. Um, we've talked about some tremendous scenes in film history on the show. A scene of equal weight to just about any scene that I've ever seen in a movie is the argument between Al Pacino and John Gazelle in The Godfather 2. It's one of the single greatest scenes in movie history. It's a masterclass of everything. Staging, editing, composition, and certainly acting. It's devastating. And the way Gazelle uses that chair is just, it, it's like a character just leaning into it, back, pushing into it. The moment of Gazelle's career is that explosion. It's, I, I'm not going to, yep. I'm smart. I'm not dumb, like everyone says. The, yeah. It is a huge, I don't know why. It's a huge emotional trigger point for me in movies when dim characters acknowledge that they're not that smart. Forrest Gump, like that movie has at least one shattering, devastating moment when he sees his son for the first time. And he just asks Robin Wright, like, well, is, is, he, is he smart? Yeah. And he's just saying, yeah. like, is, you know, please don't tell me this boy is like me. Please tell me. And that... And to hear him say that, like, I'm not dumb. Like, Fredo, sorry, dude, you are dumb. Like, you are. And I'm not dumb like people say I'm smart. You know, and just Pacino never raising his voice below, like, the lowest octave. Like, it's not the way Pop wanted it. Mm -hmm. <sighs> what a scene, huh? When characters reveal themselves exactly what you're saying so unapologetically and so vulnerably where they admit these these faults about themselves or these realizations. But I think what makes that payoff so good is that for two movies, you're watching a guy as hard as he can prove that he's not that and and tried and he does whatever he can to the point of betraying his brother to just be something that he wants to be that it proves everyone wrong. So for two full, well, really well done movies, you've got this character who's burying all of this and doing whatever he can to, to never have that surface. And then he, he reveals it in this scene. I think that's a big part of why it's so powerful, but it also speaks to exactly what you're talking about, the writing and everything of this scene, because Coppola's idea of putting Kazale in a chair to deliver all of this. Oh. That's what makes Kazale so breathtaking to watch is his choices. Like if that was his choice, like you can see him in the way he plays every scene, the choices that he makes, but even when he's not talking, like the little physical things that he does, but that's such an extreme choice because you could film that any way. 
Like you could, the choice could be if you're Fredo that you know Michael's coming to see you. You want to stand up for yourself. Hell yeah! Like you know that this is happening. You know you've got something you want to say, and that would have made sense. Mm -hmm. That would actually be in the parameters of what the scene is—a choice that makes sense. But to look at a chair and that chair—it's not even a chair. It's like a I don't even know what the hell weird lounging. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, like very hard to move in. But honestly. If you think about it, like if you're an actor giving yourself those obstacles, how am I even going to make a point when I'm sprawled out like this? And that's what you see him do. His Mm -hmm. hands going everywhere in the corner. He's trying to, you know, he's trying to even like when he's trying to say I'm smart, like he's trying to actually pick himself up out of the chair, but he can't because it's so awkward. Mm -hmm. But that's how much it means to him to make that point. So it's just, it's so, so, oh my God, it. That chair is what makes the scene. <laughs> it is. It is. And it's, and it then, is. I mean, you have Gordon Willis shooting, which one of the best DPs ever, but that is, you have to look at the angles they pick because there's not a lot of cutting and there's not a lot of coverage. Like they didn't set up the camera in a bunch of different places to cut, 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 cut. It's very, very simple. It's just really inspiring. It's really, really inspiring. And it is one of the great scenes in the history of film. I love that after he explodes with all of that, he, he like his body collapses back collapses. into the chair. Falls. It, it's oh. almost as like that was everything he had. And then when Michael says you're dead to me and all that, he remains. Mm-hmm. So it's not even like that hurt him. It was getting that out that fucking killed him. Yeah, and he's just down now. And then it's just Michael putting it all on top of him, and he just takes it. Because he doesn't yeah. do anything. He just lays there and takes it. That's something you don't think you actually make a choice about if you're an actor. I think that's a situation where that moment has taken you there and you're like, I got nothing. I, I get that. That was it, And it's so, so beautiful and so sad. Oh, it's so good. It really is. And then the rest of their story plays out in a very, you know, Shakespearean tragic way. But then I forget you get that nice little button at the end and it's that flashback to, you know, the Don's birthday and Michael's just joined the military and there's that great moment of you're back to carefree Fredo. So, oh, Mike, that's great. I'm happy for you. He goes to shake his hand and Jimmy Khan, you know, pushes it away. So it's just, yeah, it's a great way to end Gazelle's contribution to the Godfather series. And Wow, what what a performance. And now we're getting into a, a pretty tough field. 1974 Best Supporting Actor. We have Michael V. Gazzo, Lee Strasberg, the great Lee Strasberg, and De Niro are all nominated for part two. De Niro wins the Oscar. The other nominees, Fred Astaire for The Towering Inferno, Jeff Bridges for Thunderbolt and Lightfoot. Um, I guess it would be odd to nominate four actors from the same movie, but whether... But Gazelle should be here, and whether he replaces Gazo or Astaire, fine. Um, I would have nominated Gazelle for this, and I would have had him winning. No bullshit. Oh, wow. That's Yeah. I'm not taking anything away from De Niro. Like, come on, De Niro. But I think John Gazelle in this is one of the... It's one of the best acting performances I've ever seen. Godfather Part Two. Oof. And dude, I can't disagree to think about it. A 100% nomination takes someone out of there, um, I, I, either whether it's Strasburg or... Um, gotta leave Strasburg, man you gotta i mean it's like you know he doesn't act much he's taught all these titans i love that they gave him a dom fred astaire in the towering inferno is whatever yeah and it it, because it truly is because um 
it's almost like the scene that's known from the Godfather Part Two. Mm-hmm. Like if if you kind of boil down Godfather Part Two, I think the thing that everyone thinks about is maybe I'm wrong, but I think it's the, the kind of boiling point is like, oh, that's where Michael kills Fredo. Mm-hmm. That moment, but the Godfather in its series has so much going on. Yeah, that's that legacy though. Like that's that's what he meant to that movie, and it wouldn't have worked if he wasn't as good as he was. Completely agree. I think the coolest thing about researching this podcast was I've never in my life watched The Godfather 2 and then Dog Day Afternoon back to back just because of the way this career is laid out. I did that. What a juxtaposition between him and Pacino in those two roles where in Godfather 2, Pacino barely raises his voice. I mean, he does in a few scenes, you know, the the abortion argument and then but with gazelle he never really raises his voice you know we're talking about chemistry here you watch these movies back to back and they essentially switch roles pacino is so reserved and calculating as michael corleone and then he's a complete spaz as sunny in dog day and in dog day afternoon john gazelle plays sal and he doesn't say a lot here he's the guy you got to keep your eye on you know someone as spastic as pacino is here he has a lot to show But the strong, silent type is the person you have to watch out for. And this is my favorite Al Pacino performance. And I know we're not here to talk about him, but this is also a very big Pacino performance. And that's hard to play off of. And I saw this movie for the first time very young. From the first time I saw it till this week when I watched it again, I've never once thought that Al Pacino's character was going to hurt someone in the movie. But every time Sal gives a warning, I absolutely think he's half a second away from pulling the trigger on that semi-automatic machine gun. I mean, when he looks at Pacino and he's like, you know, I'm, I'm ready to do it. Like, I'm ready to kill people. You fucking believe that. And this is 22 minutes into the movie. So that sets this dangerous tone of like, so this one who's kind of running around all crazy, I, I think he's like, he's going to be okay. He just wants some money. This other partner here who's like in the suit, he's got this crazy fucking hair. What a great performance, Sal. Uh, Speaking of the juxtaposition of the two, Pacino and Cazelle working together, it's a switch in power. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, Michael has all the power in The Godfather and Fredo has none and feels that. And this, I really would say that, that, that Sal has the power. Because because Sonny's freaking out the whole entire time. And yet, whenever Sal commands something from Sonny, Sonny listens. Mm-hmm. And there's also this mystery behind him. Like, you don't know who this guy is. You don't know where he's come from. You don't know how really they're friends. Because you learn all about Al Pacino's character throughout the movie. Right. Never really find out about this guy. And I think with the... The benefit and pleasure in acting that is you get to create that because every scene that John has in this is a different expression of something about this guy. And kind of the Sam Rockwell, you brought him up earlier when he talks about his eyes. You can watch The Godfather and The Conversation and The Deer Hunter, and you will see a very, very different set of eyes being portrayed in front of you by John Cazale. His eyes completely change. I don't know how that's even done. I don't even know if it's necessarily a conscious thing. I think it's just a a sort of 
in a complete embodiment in the physicality of the character that you're playing that that just changes and you don't really even there's not like a tool you're like oh as an actor I'm going to go and change my eyes I think it's just a full on embodiment of physicality and that just translates and there's something in those eyes that when that character's looking at you oh god you're right you don't know what he's going to do and yet he's so sensitive and aware to everything that's going on. I think my favorite moment of it is when they're overhearing on the radio that um, the li- the reporters listen as homosexuals have taken over the bank. <laughs> yeah. And you can tell he's offended, but there's also like two ways you play that. Like, whoa, 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 whoa. Like, I'm not a homosexual, but the way he actually, it's, it's, it's almost innocent. It's like, I'm not a homosexual. Yeah, he's like, wait, can can you can you tell them that that I'm not? Like, that's what you're concerned about, Sal, right now. That's, yeah, that's what's on your mind. Yeah, and 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 it's just sort of like, but that's going to be on the TV, like that. But people don't like that's not me, and it's such an innocent mm-hmm. type of request. Like, can we just tell them not to do that? Whereas, like the like, especially at that time period, the macho way would be like, you got to tell them they can't say that. Take it back. We're we're not that. I'm not that. But you wouldn't have expected that character to react in that way. A beautiful choice. It, just a beautiful, beautiful choice. It's, uh, it's a shockingly progressive movie. I mean, yeah. I, I remember seeing this when I was 10, and I had, I had never heard of... I never in a mainstream movie heard people talking about trans characters. This is 1975. This, I mean, Al Pacino playing a gay guy is like, what? I'm married. Married to a woman gay guy is the doors that this movie kind of shattered open is really, really something. And this is another one I watched the commentary for. Sidney Lumet, also great at director's commentaries. I love two things I caught. Um, the Wyoming line was improvised. Yeah. How the hell you come up with that and just stay in it? Because it's not funny. He's not kidding. He's not kidding at all. And Pacino knows that. Pacino's like, no. oh, this, oh boy, this poor guy. And then uh, just one one little quote I wrote that Lumet said about Gazelle. He has a tremendous sadness to him. I don't know where it came from, but wow, is it there? It's in this and The Godfather 2 also. And that that was he he just saw that there was this sadness to that he was putting into these characters that that he couldn't direct him to. Like he brought that. He brought it, it's it's what you're talking about like the changing of the eyes that, Oh my God, just the contradictory nature of him, how he's like this health nut apparently. And then <laughs> and they're like, okay, you know that, but you're robbing banks. It's, Oh man, it's a tremendous performance and his biggest in terms of screen time. This is probably the most he's actually on screen in a single movie. One thing I want to kind of say about it too, is like talking about when you, when you finally recognize this guy and start to notice him, watch him all the time. Mm-hmm, like watch mm-hmm. what he's doing when he's not the focal point too. It's so charged and so invested his physicality, the way he moves, what he's doing when he's, he's not st- trying to steal focus. He's just being. He's just being. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And that's what's captivating. And there's also something about, um, injecting humor into the characters mm-hmm. that you're mm-hmm. playing, even when something's... Because you're right, the Wyoming line is not funny. It's funny to us, but he doesn't mean it. It's funny, funny to us. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. But there's like, he's not afraid. Like, there's that one thing where they first get in and they're robbing the bank and they they can't see each other between the pillars. Oh, they're And looking, they're both yeah. like going from side <laughs> to side. Oh, like, I love that. To, as an actor, to allow that moment to happen, 
because it's not, not, there's nothing funny about it, but we're getting stuck right here. It's a trust that you have that no matter where you're going to go with your scene partner, maybe no one ever meant for something to be funny. Maybe no one ever meant, but this was the place that we truthfully found ourselves to not deny it and to actually go in towards it and deal with it and let it be however it's going to turn out. That's when you get those moments where you're like, it's never supposed to be funny, but that is kind of funny. But that's sometimes how life is. If you're robbing a bank and you don't know what you're doing. Mm -hmm. You know, that 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 shit happens and to let it. He is so specific in his choices, but he's also so smart to allow for whatever is going to happen to happen and go in towards that. And Lumet talks a lot about that, about how Lumet famously uh, rehearsed his movies as much as he could. I mean, for weeks. And he's like and he says, we rehearse it. You know, we're in a room. It's all the it's all the actors. But when you get to the space, that's when. You're doing, you know, your final rehearsal because here's a space. And they discovered that pillar thing pretty quickly and they just used it. And, you know, Pacino unable to open the box and he's fumbling with the box. And that was just on the first take. And he didn't mean to do yeah. that. And Lumet said, you're doing that in every take, every subsequent take, whether you mean to or not. So go for it. It's just it's leaning into those accidents and giving, you know, really good appreciation for these performances in that vein. This is Gazal's biggest performance in terms of screen time. So we get to 1975 supporting actor. I actually think this is the most egregious snub of his career. Only because The Godfather 2, you already had three pretty big heavy hitters with nominations in there. So I don't know if he could have snuck in. But let me run this down. We have Brad Dourif, One Floor of the Cuckoo's Nest. Great work. Burgess Meredith, The Day of the Locust. Chris Sarandon for Dog Day Afternoon. Jack Warden for Shampoo. George Burns wins for the Sunshine Boys. What the uh, fuck? Gazelle is better than all of them. Yeah. I, I, I don't even know like how to. George Burns, the Sunshine Boys is like, it's funny, like cool. But this is, uh, I get why Chris Sarandon was nominated because of the, just how politically hot button that performance was in that character. But the fact that John Gazelle was not nominated here is completely and utterly asinine. It makes no sense. So as we said in our intros, it's I, I love that you said that his last movie was the one that kind of opened you up to him because it was for me too. And we have talked a lot about on this podcast, um, Focal Point, by doing something in the background but not doing too much. And that is never more present than what he's doing as Stash in The Deer Hunter mm -hmm. because he is always doing something part of that is because well let me just start at the beginning it's early 1977 michael chimino is casting his vietnam war epic deer the deer hunter and everyone wants gazelle in a small but essential role as stash but he has been diagnosed with terminal lung cancer and he's not going to live for much longer his girlfriend, Meryl Streep, says she's not doing the movie unless John does. She was a young actress at the time. This was his, her first major role. Robert De Niro puts up his insurance money to protect the film if John should pass away. That's crazy. And Chimino, the director, agrees to film all of Gazelle's scenes first, and he delivers an antagonistic, perfectly crass performance as Stash. He's always doing something. Chimino's the type of guy who's like... Very similar to Milos Forman and where cameras are on. We're going to do as many takes as I want. Mess up. Improvise. Do, do something. I, I don't care. Just be doing something and understand that 
I don't care about close-ups. You, all five of you guys, six of you guys, assume you were always on camera through the whole thing. So in doing that, you see Gazelle like cleaning that silly ass gun of his or he's checking himself out in the mirror all the time. It's so, yeah. oh man. But Gazelle passes away March 13th, 1978. They're still filming the movie and the movie goes on to win Best Picture, Best Director, Meryl Streep's nominated, De Niro's nominated, Christopher Walken wins Supporting Actor and the John Gazelle film legacy is complete. Oh, man, I I think the thing that my biggest takeaway is like growing up in a blue collar town, seeing all of these guys, but particularly him, I think truly expresses what those guys are really like, because he's the guy that everyone kind of makes fun of, takes himself very seriously, uh, doesn't understand certain things. But everyone likes him. There's, I don't know, you can't put your finger on it. There's just something to me about his character in this that just speaks so truthfully to that type of guy and to that type of world. I think that's my biggest takeaway from him in this. Because everything that he does is just all bubbles around that idea of this type of person. Kind of similar to the conversation in that Mm -hmm. way I was saying earlier about... He's a certain type of guy. This, you know, conversation, he was kind of like this nerdy busybody. And yet in here, he's the guy that like, I don't even have words. It's just, it's just right on the money of exactly that life. All of them are. All of those guys, like. All of them are. We've, if you have a group of guy friends, like those portrayals are not cookie cutter at all. But like, I have an Axel friend. You know, the George Zanza, mm-hmm. the bartender, like I have that guy. We, a lot of us have the dark, serious, foreboding Michael Robert De Niro's character in it. You know, we, and then a lot of us have the fucking goof that you don't really take seriously, like Stash, the guy who just sleeps around a lot. He's the town idiot. You know, he's whatever he's going here, he's going there. He's, I, oh my God, I love it when he's a, uh, checking himself out and the, i love the emphasis on just checking himself out a lot he's looking at himself in the mirror when they when they knock off from work and i think it's actually who's like come on hey stan come on it's no use <laughs> it's like, yeah that's so much and then you know he's, he's checking himself out in the car window and they and they hold that for a really long time Usually, you know beautiful he takes himself so seriously so like stash takes himself you this dude thinks he's like the man of this town and it's like dude you're staying yeah. here you're working these other three are going to vietnam like you're not doing you're just staying here yep. working and i'm glad you mentioned uh like the small town aspect like my the reason why one of the main reasons i latch on to the deer hunter so young is that my dad grew up in a town like just like this western pennsylvania my dad did like factory work in summers so he's like yeah these guys the, the guys who get off at 7 a.m. and they go to the bar and get yep. drunk and then they maybe they go home and take a nap before the wedding. Maybe they don't like. Yes, these are very, very specific, well drawn out characters. And, you know, he's the wedding scene when he just sees his I guess that's his girlfriend or his wife. It can't be his wife, but his girlfriend. Yeah, he's like, grab your ass again. I, oh, my God. It's so great. And then you get to that boot scene. Right. The argument between yeah. him and Robert De Niro and. I've had fights with friends, friends I've been friends with for 20 years. We've never thought about anything big or serious, but we fought about like articles of clothing just like that. Yep. Like 
look, man, you don't ever bring your shit out here. Like, I'm not carrying you. I'm sick of this. This is my last fucking hunting trip before I go off to war. Like, I'm not playing this fucking game anymore. Does Stash care? No. He's got his gun. This is this. This is this. He's just mocking him. It's like, dude, it's one of your best friends. He's about to go to war. Like, chill the fuck out. But he can't because that's not in this guy's constitution. It this is a really, really good performance. We're going to get into more scenes, but I mean, tell me about that boot thing. It's oh. it, what well, you just said it perfectly. And I actually, one of the things I truly love is how in order to defend himself, he brings up the source subject to many guys and it always goes to women. Yeah. It's like, how many times do I fix you up? And, and, and you don't do anything. Like, you know, like, like we all like get laid or whatnot, but you don't, you're the one guy, you know? So he's like really trying to cut to that button that's always going to upset. And he knows that it would upset him the most. It's just such a immature, macho power play to make from a guy that has no other leg to stand on about it. And to, and to watch De Niro so stoic in 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 not breaking to it and Kazal just trying just over and over what can i do and then finally kind of giving it up cuz it's sort of like all right and then what's even better about that scene is that the friends that are watching it go back and forth they're like give them yeah. the boots and come on I mean, yeah, we mess around like, enough what's the matter with you and then uh, yeah, yeah what's the matter with and you and then some guys are like yeah. to Gazelle, like you're out of line or i think even walking says uh-huh. like, you're out of line it's it, it's yep. so realistic of like a guy of the dichotomy so, of like yeah. five, six guys. It's yeah. just a perfect, perfect scene. And the other scene that really rings true to me in Kazale's performance is um, when De Niro first comes back home. Oh, and he jumps on his back. Oh, my God. And he jumps on his back. But there's also this very, very real, honest communication breakdown. Mm-hmm. Like they're so happy to see him. But they don't know what to say. What do you say? What do you say? Like, what Where's do you Nick? say? Where's yeah. Christopher Walken? What's going on? Yeah. And, and not only that, but, you know, he's like, yeah, nothing's changed here. Still doing the same thing because you go back to these blue collar towns and you ask how it's been. Oh, yeah. 20 years has gone by. It's still the same. Nothing's changed. Yeah. Still doing this. Still doing that. And there's just like this void where you don't know. You no longer know how to relate to this person who was once a part of something so close, even war. I mean, you, you know, you leave for however long, but even when you come back, it's like, we're not who we were before you left. And we've stayed the exact same. You've changed. But instead of actually being able to be honest about it, no one knows how to do that, especially guys like these. So it just breaks down into, yeah, it's good to see you again. Like, trying to force the way things used to be that's again just honesty this is an honest scene and honest reaction i I just love it so much i love that little scene between him and de niro at the bowling alley where they just kind of look at each other and it's kind of like because i mean stash is he's a loud mouth he's arrogant he's annoying and he could say any number of things right there but they just look at each other like i get it man i'm glad you're home i can't imagine what you've been through I'm happy you're here, even if I don't know how to say that out loud. Yeah. There's this tension in the movie when De Niro comes back that has been foreshadowed with Stash like cleaning the gun that little revolver he has. And he always, you know, he brings it out and then they go hunting and 
Stosh, you know, De Niro's out of the cabin and Stosh messes with Axel and he starts pointing the gun at yeah. him. Yeah. And we don't know if it's loaded or not. We, I mean, you want to assume it's not. De Niro comes in and based on what he's been through in the war, doesn't really like seeing six shooters just <laughs> being <laughs> kind of tossed around all playfully. And Stosh is like, what? It it's not, yeah, like what? It's not loaded. And then he does, he checks it and then shoots a fucking bullet through the roof and basically saying like it is loaded. And then... This is the great scene from the deer hunter that no one talks about. He puts that gun to his fucking head and pulls the trigger. Yep. Pu- takes all the pulls bullets the out except one, does a Russian roulette, spins that wheel, and um, he could fucking kill John Gazelle. Like, right there. He could. Yeah, he has a right one there. in six shot. And it's like everything has kind of been building up to that moment, at least in their, in their lives. And, you know, we have to, obviously, the, the chamber hits blank. Thank God. It... We gather it's a very quiet car ride home. They don't say anything when they get home. And then, and then you know, you just bring it to that final scene of them all sitting around the table singing, God bless America. I, I was in tears during this final scene. I usually am in the end of the deer hunter. Now I'm watching it and I'm like, oh, so they're all singing this and they know that John Gazelle is going to be dead soon. Like the actor in real life. So I, that just... You know, it care it has a little more weight to it. It's like John Cassavetes when he made Love Streams. He knew he was gonna die. He had kind of a an expiration on his life. So it's I don't know, it's very sad to watch, but there's there's Gazelle's final final performance on screen for all of us to enjoy and marvel at. It's just an unbelievably talented, talented legacy. And um, you know, we talked a lot about specifics in the acting. And, um, you know, John Cazale is someone who meant a lot to me because as to young actors, can't recommend watching these movies. Just number one, the movies. These are all Mm -hmm. like five of like potentially arguably the greatest movies ever made. But watching him in it, because you're going to be floored by all the acting across the board for all of these movies. But if you hone in on him, if you're a young actor, this is the one that you should watch. Because of everything he's doing, the specificity, the choices, the behavior, the chameleon-like ability to be so different mm-hmm. in each thing and fl- and have the balls to fly under the radar like he did. Like we talked about in the beginning, like he's not the one who jumps at you. But at one point or another, you will take notice. And when you do, that's when the game has changed. And I think Mm -hmm. that's, in a great way, that's his legacy. What's so cool when we do these profiles on actors is that, you know, I've seen all these movies many times, but I've never watched all five of them with the intention of just focusing on him. This one guy. When we did that with Amy Adams, like, I, I had never really thought too much about her performance and doubt and then when i rewatched that movie and just focused on her i was like holy shit she's doing so much here same with john cassavetes in rosemary's baby i never watched rosemary's baby and just looked at him i was like oh my god when you do that here it reveals the movies to you in a different way not Mm -hmm. just his characters the entire movie and i want to kind of hone in on this this the nature of his prep which is talked about in this documentary, I knew it was you, which is an HBO documentary. This is a really cool documentary. And if you do want some gazelle like further reading, I would honestly first recommend doing the director's commentaries for each of his films. 
Coppola, Lumet have so many nice things to say about Gazelle. And then the cinematographer, Vilmo Zygmunt, does a great commentary for The Deer Hunter. Taught me a lot about that movie, actually. So check this out. But there's a really cool documentary called I Know It Was You, all about John Gazelle. And you get a lot of interviews with people. The only negative thing I can say about this is that it's so damn short. I mean, you have Meryl Streep, Pacino, (laughs) Hackman, De Niro, John Savage, Sam Rockwell, Steve Buscemi. And we only get 39 minutes of footage? Like, come on. Yeah. You could have, I don't know. There's a feature in there. We could have learned a little bit more. But, you know, I mean, this podcast is like way longer than 39 minutes. Like, yeah. I, I don't know. But, <laughs> yeah. So that's that's just. But if you can find it, watch it. It's cool. Some of the some of the like information, and the facts that we've been saying about Gazelle here, we got from this doc. Yep. But yes, the it's a legacy that just lives on and on. And the reverence that. Everyone who speaks about him, including Gene Hackman. I mean, Gene yeah. Hackman is in this documentary. Gene Hackman doesn't show up for too many uh, documentaries, folks. And yeah, he's just like he lit up. Oh God, yeah, John. He would. Oh man, he would just do this. And yeah, the 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 one thing from the I knew it was you documentary that I loved was Al Pacino talking about how like with John, you never knew where the acting ended or began. He was mm-hmm. always in it. And it doesn't necessarily mean he was someone that like was in character 100% of the time, but it was on a time that you show up on set and you are getting ready and waiting. That's when it's all beginning. An improv is kind of formed, a energy is being created, and and you go when it's there. And um, he's an actor's actor. And that's why this is very much, you know, hopefully for other young actors that are listening, this is... This is the guy to to research. And with that, we're going to get right into what are you watching here? Who's going first? Yeah, whatever. Go. <laughs> what are you watching? I'm going to be a little obvious here. Bear with me, folks. In COVID, Francis Ford Coppola recut and re-released The Godfather Part 3 with a much better title and a much better construction. It's now called The Godfather Coda, The Death of Michael Corleone, released in the original was released in 1990. This recut was released in 2020. It's just a better movie. It really is. He did a good job with it. There are a few faults that editing cannot save, particularly in certain acting performances, but there, this is cut more like the structure of the first film. It starts with a big event. It ends with a massacre. Pacino's all in here. Diane Keaton is game. Uh, Talia Shire, who, you know, Francis Ford Coppola's sister, might be better here than in parts one and two, genuinely. Eli Wallach having a blast. But then, of course, there's Andy Garcia, who steals every scene he's in as Sonny Corleone's bastard child. And Andy Garcia really kind of reminds me of a young John Gazelle here. John Gazelle is not this flamboyant as Andy Garcia is in this movie, but the young guy who, you know, Andy Garcia was not that well known in 1990. He had been in The Untouchables and stuff, but he's really making a name for himself and he steals that movie. And, you know, there, yes, there are some glaring not really plot holes, but just their major logic leaps for these characters. And some of the acting is just not that good, but there's definitely value to find in this movie. And it's available to stream for free on Paramount Plus right now. And I don't know, I I watched Godfather 1, Godfather 2. I read the damn book. So I went, why not? Let's just, I've never seen this coda, this recut. So let's do it. And it was, it was worth my time. Definitely. And it is better than the 1990 original release. So just check it out. Hell yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. If we're talking about a uh, masterclass in acting, which is what John Cazale gave in all of his performances, 
then I'm going to recommend a movie that um, I learned a lot from when I was starting out acting that is regarded as a masterclass in itself of film acting. And that's um, Kramer versus Kramer with Dustin Ooh, Hoffman and Meryl Streep. You know, you, you watch that movie and you just watch what everyone's doing there and you just get it. You learn a lot watching that movie about acting, and you learn a lot from watching John Cazale and all of his performances. So check that one out uh, if you want to have a further acting clinic. Yeah, clinic. There you go. Here's one for you. Uh, Deer Hunter, as we mentioned, wins Best Picture in 1978 about the Vietnam War. That is the main reason it's cited for Apocalypse Now not winning in 1979. What do you give it to? Kramer versus Kramer. Which one? Or Apocalypse Now. I think I got to give Apocalypse Now. Yeah, that's fair. This, this, not to take anything away from Kramer versus Kramer. It's, just, it's, no, just, it's no. always a fun discussion. It's like Raging Bull or Ordinary People the next year. You know. Yeah, just, exactly. Kramer versus Kramer is a really good movie. It's a really good. But when you look at everything that went into Apocalypse Now, I think it's yeah. sort of like. It's kind of yeah. crazy. Yeah. It didn't win. <laughs> John Gazelle, you're missed. You've been missed. Michael K. Williams, you're missed. Norm MacDonald. You are missed. Three legends. I'm glad we got to talk about them. I'm just if you watch a John Gazelle film, which you know people watch these movies all the time, let us know if you've just focused on him. We want to know like mm. cool new shit you found. W a y w underscore podcast on Twitter for Nick Dostal. I'm Alex Withrow. Thanks for listening and happy watching. Hey everyone, thanks again for listening. You can watch my films and read my movie blog at alexwithrow.com. nicholasdostal.com is where you can find all of Nick's film work. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at whatareyouwatchingpodcast at gmail.com. And of course, you can find us on Twitter at wayw underscore podcast. Next time, we're going to get ready for the French Dispatch by diving deep into the career of Wes Anderson. Stay tuned.